0: Portions of the following program may contain pre recorded material.
1: Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. On this September 24th from California, the Hillsdale Dialogue is live. I'm Hugh Hewitt. This week, Dean Matt Spaulding of the Graduate School of Statesmanship of Hillsdale College, inside the Beltway in the belly of the beast. Good morning, Dean Spaulding. How are you? Thank you for joining me early in the morning. Good, good morning, Hugh. I'm great, and good to talk with you. I have Greetings a uh, from uh, Hillsdale campus. I have a very interesting approach to this week. Normally the Hillsdale dialogue is a deep dive, but you are running the graduate school on statesmanship, so I'm going to actually treat you, not the scholar you are, but as an analyst, would be treated this week, and run through some of the current issues asking for your response as a scholar of the Constitution as to what is going on. It's sort of like okay. constitutional jeopardy, since we are in constitutional jeopardy. <laughs> the first thing I want to ask you about, the very first thing, is Alexander Mayorkas, the chair, the, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, on CNN with Wolf Blitzer, Secretary Mayorkas says this in the middle of a border crisis, cut number seven. The
0: special U.S. envoy to Haiti resigned today, as you well know, saying, and I'll read a quote from his resignation letter, I will not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees and illegal immigrants. Uh, Mr. Secretary, how do you respond to the charge that the Biden administration, that the policy of the administration is inhumane and counterproductive?
2: Well, first of all, let me say that we don't use the term illegal immigrants. I actually issued a policy in the Department of Homeland Security. We use the term non-citizen to respect the dignity of every individual as a preliminary matter.
1: So I want to begin there, Dean Spaulding, because it's the substitution of mindless rhetoric for a policy difference. What did you make of that response and about the border crisis?
0: Well, I mean... It's always hard to know where to start with these things. <laughs> uh, there, is, there is so much going on here. I, I, I think one of the first things we do is kind of step back and look from a, from a higher perspective as to what is going on here. And, and this is actually a good example of that. He immediately dived down into um, minor points, the seemingly changing language to reposition the issue. Yes. Uh, but, it, but, in, but in doing so, we need to keep an eye on what, what is actually happening here. And these two things are have in this case have come together. That is his rhetoric and what and, and reality. And indeed, many of the things that's been going on the last few weeks have are showing us what political reality is really about. Um, and and he's made this point about well, we don't call them illegal immigrants; we call them non-citizens. Um, which of course that rhetoric itself points to the the precise problem, which is uh, if you've lost control of your borders and. There are different groups from different countries coming in in large numbers. We don't know what to do with them. They're getting shipped all over the place. You, um, you actually no longer are controlling the terms by which one could or could not, may or may not become a citizen. That that distinction is inherent in a for any sovereign nation. It's inherent in sovereignty and in a constitutional republic in which we we do allow citizens in which the nation really defines uh the idea that anyone could become a citizen if you've lost control of it completely uh you have a complete breakdown of the rule of law um, and and uh so changing the, the terminology uh in this odd in this odd way that he did actually points to the problem.
1: Uh, I also want to uh, point out that going it. back to the framers, Matt Spaulding, you're an expert in the constitution. They had a specific citizenship requirement for the presidency, though it was waived early in the Republic's years allegedly, so that Alexander Hamilton would be eligible one day to become president. But they insisted that citizens be born in the United States. Now, you can become a naturalized citizen like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but Arnold could not run for the presidency because of the explicit terms of the Constitution, even if he had been electable. He could not have run by the terms of the Constitution. Why do you think the framers did that? And, and why make that an article in the new document governing the republic?
0: Great question. It goes back to the the broader distinction between this country and virtually every other country in the world, which is that for most nations, uh, the legitimacy of your country comes from uh, your bloodline, your ethnicity, uh, your religion, um, or some deep tradition going back thousands of years. The reason America is different, and this is actually one of the points we are debating today, which is why all these debates point back to this original question, this nation begins by saying that all men are created equal, that is recognizing that each human person has a a, a dignity as a human being uh, and has has equal rights. That said, we are a particular nation. We have a universal principle, but a particular nation. How do you resolve the two? You can only resolve it through a process of constitutional government, rules and laws. But one key aspect of that is to allow for non-citizens to come into the country and become citizens. So that that idea of assimilation is actually central to the American purpose, which means these various distinctions— uh, about uh, the requirements for the presidency, the requirements for becoming a citizen, maintaining control of the border, determining who does and does not get asylum. Those concepts, which some are now saying violate uh, you know, humanity and, and, um, uh, or uh, mean-spirited, are actually crucially important to allowing this democratic republic to actually have a very robust and generous immigration system but you've got to control it so that you can have a legitimate process so people can, can
1: do that. Now, Matt Spaulding, what happens to the rule of law when law is so visibly suspended? And not merely suspended, but uh, mocked. And I do not doubt the human dignity, I'm a Catholic, of the of the Haitians crossing the river looking for a better life, thousands of them having walked from Chile. It's a tragedy. It's a a testament to courage and valor, but it is also a suspension of law. What is the effect of that on the general public when they see the law disregarded?
0: Oh, this is, this is devastating. Indeed, many of the things that are going on right now in Congress, this, elsewhere, all really point to a general breakdown of the rule of law. We, uh, the, the, we, we think of the rule of law as a very technical thing, a, a lawyerly, approach to issues as opposed to being humane. But actually the rule of law, that is the rule by which rather than individual men and arbitrary decisions rule things, there's a, a agreed-upon rule uh, that, that sets up the terms by which we rule ourselves and self-govern. Um, the breakdown of that is, is devastating. Remember the stories about uh, crime in New York City? Uh, the broken windows theory: as soon as you allow the breakdown around the edges, it actually creeps its way back up. Um, and when we see around us, um, uh, you know, the president or Congress or national leaders getting around or uh, subverting the law or not following the process or ignoring it, what signal does that send down the chain, including to including to people around the world who want to come here for good reasons? Uh, but uh, see an opening to completely ignore the law, to which we can then add, what about all those people who may be coming in with them that actually have um, uh, you know
1: Malign criminal intent.
0: purposes yeah. and, and uh, you know are uh, you know, terrorists and others that might actually threaten us? They see that opening too, but so it, it runs the whole gamut. So I I want to bring up,
1: we we have a mutual friend, John Eastman, he's been on the show many times, wrote a very controversial memo during the uh, post-election challenge by President Trump. And I think he proposed uh, an illegal thing. I think he did it as a hypothetical as a lawyer. I haven't talked to John about it, but he proposed setting aside the Electoral College Act, and I would not have agreed with that, and indeed Mike Pence rejected it. But everybody who's was in up arms over the Eastman memo are silent about the border. Do you know, Matt, if you're going to defend the rule of law, you have to defend it against John and against the Biden administration. You have to actually defend it everywhere and at all times.
0: No, that's right. And and one of the um, uh, to to get out of the the opposite problem, which is to have the rule of law so strict, you can't actually get things done. That points us back to the beauty of the American system, whereby you have three branches of government and checks and balances in a court and a legislature, uh, division between the federal government and the state governments. Uh, but the the undergirding the thing that undergirds all of that at the base, the, the, the real accomplishment, if you will, of the of the, the American founding and the development of British constitutional law into America is this idea that there is a due process, a rule of law that we all must abide
1: by, and that goes in all cases, and you can't merely ignore it when it's in your political self-interest. You can't pick and choose. You have to either say, we're in, and I am, and so Matt Spaulding, and so is Hillsdale, and that's why the Hillsdale Dialogue is on every Friday in the last Radio Hour of the Week, and we'll continue after this. Please stay tuned.
2: There may be only one or two people in the Beltway who can actually tell the truth. You're listening to one of them. The truth continues when Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment.
1: Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Matt Spaulding is the dean of the Hillsdale Graduate School of Statesmanship inside the Beltway. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. Including all of the Hillsdale Dialogues dating up to 10 years now at hugh Matt Spaulding, I want to play for you an exchange at the White House yesterday on immigration between Yamiche Alcindor, representing the Fourth Estate, PBS, publicly funded broadcast, and Jen Psaki, the White House flack, flacking for the President. Cut number 11.
3: also said in his letter, he called the, pre- the, the U.S. policy inhumane, deeply flawed, does the president believe anything in this letter that Daniel Foot is saying rings true? Has some sort of point that he that he believes is, is true? Which aspect? He called the, the the he called the the policy toward Haiti inhumane. He said that he
4: wasn't specific in his letter. What I noted earlier before, what I noted early. Let me finish, Yamiche. What I noted earlier before is that. We have taken very specific actions as it relates to the horrific photos that we that are not we're not going to stand for in this administration. I don't know if he was referring to that or something else. That's why I asked, raise the point. His purview. Let me finish, Yamiche. His purview was not about migration. He didn't raise his concerns about migration privately. We respect his point of view, respect his ability to bring forward concerns, to raise ideas, to raise proposals. That's certainly something the president welcomes from everybody on his team and something that he had the opportunity to do in a range of meetings. We also have to make decisions here based on what we feel are going to help promote democracy in Haiti, including uh, Haitian-led Uh, reforms, Haitian-led steps on the ground to make changes in the country.
3: A number of people who say that he did raise concerns over the deportation of patients and the treatment of Haitians. Are you saying then that Daniel Foote is not telling the truth
4: in this letter? I would point you to the State Department, uh, who have conveyed clearly in their statement what I just said. And
3: one last question, I promise. Yeah. The, the last question is, Daniel Foote, the, spe- the former special envoy to Haiti, he's raising this idea that the U.S. should be listening to Haitian civil society, not backing the, the current prime minister who was not elected by the people. What's the president's response to that? Because those civil society members have been telling me and other reporters for months, even before the assassination of the president, that President Biden was not listening to the people of Haiti about how to move forward with their government.
4: Yamiche, we support a Haitian-led process charting the country's course through the current political situation. We don't back.
1: End. Stop right there. So Matt Spaulding, I played this out. It's so interesting on many levels. But at the very end there, Yamiche Alcindor says, is the president listening to the people of Haiti? <laughs> the United States has a system where the people are represented by a constitutional structure. I thought that was interesting, but I don't think either of them knew the significance of the question. that They're talking about governance. They're talking about the rule of law, and Haiti doesn't have it.
0: Yeah, there are. I mean, again, there are so many things in that exchange. There are several <laughs> things, I thought, that made for uh, a confusion. Uh, that one in particular... Who are, is the president listening to the people of Haiti? Uh, but the other one was there was this broad distinction between policy on the one hand and particular circumstances. Um, I, 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 you know, setting aside the <laughs> uh, the particular people involved here, um, we're not very good at thinking through politics um, in a in a way that we ought to within a constitutional system. Uh, in terms of the role of the president, in terms of policymaking, in terms of the role of Congress, uh, and that I think points to it. I, I think in, in a lot of these cases, what we're seeing, and this goes for uh, mandates and, and um, you know the other issues of the day, is the, the the rule of law is essentially being set aside as a secondary matter, as a speed yes. bump, if you will, and, 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 and as we move towards what we want to have as our policy outcome. No matter what, we'll, yes. we'll use the courts if need be, or we won't. Uh, we will sue the states or we won't. Uh, we will use Congress or we won't uh, in order to, uh, to achieve our outcome. And so the, the and the, the media the will message the media will and, message regardless will no of the story. story. That's right. And so no longer do we speak in terms of roles and responsibilities of a president, a Congress, or a governor as to how we think this through. And that lack of a framework, I I fear, is moving us towards a condition, which is precisely what the American founding was moving against, was uh, that all sovereignty does not get subsumed into a central force which can become arbitrary.
1: And it should have been, the question should have been, is the president listening to the people of the United States as expressed through the laws of their legally elected representatives with regards to the border and the Haitians are crossing illegally? That was the question. The people of Haiti, my goodness. Matt Spaulding, the dean of the Hillsdale Graduate School, will be right back. Stay tuned to the Hillsdale Dialogue.
0: You're in the middle of a nonstop action-packed information blitz.
2: The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back.
1: Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live in California. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. My counterpart is Dean Matt Spaulding, Dean of the Hillsdale Graduate School of Statesmanship inside the Beltway in the heart of the belly of the beast. I'm on the West Coast. Matt Spaulding is on the East Coast this morning. We're talking about the rule of law, and I'm using a few clips to illustrate the crisis that we are in. Uh, This is Trey Yinks on Fox with Dana Perito, reporting from Kabul, where America has deserted... Asked not only American citizens and LPRs, but tens of thousands of Afghans to whom they had made a promise of repatriation to the United States. The report, cut number two. Danny, good morning. There are thousands of U.S. green card holders stuck in
4: Afghanistan, along with Afghans who worked at the U.S. Embassy. These are their stories. Yes, I have a green card, and my daughter have used U.S. passport, and also my wife also. She's a green card holder. I live in, in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. I run two businesses in Georgia. Dulat is an American resident and U.S. taxpayer. He came to visit his family before the Taliban took control and is now one of thousands of U.S. green card holders stuck in Afghanistan. David Scott. Yeah, David Scott's congressman. The office of U.S. Congressman David Scott told him to come to this hotel today and try to get on an evacuation convoy in flight with the Qataris, so far, he's had no luck. It's not just green card holders who are unable to escape. There are a number of people outside of this hotel in Kabul who worked for the Americans yep. at the U.S. Embassy, and they're left behind. Yep. They have the documentation. It says
2: U.S. Embassy, Kabul.
4: I worked more than four, uh, four years, and uh, some uh, my uh, uh, friends was 12 years.
2: I'm Fazli Abdul-Satar,
4: and one of the employee of the U.S. Embassy as a security screener. This is from the deputy chief of mission at yep. the U.S. embassy in Kabul, promising these embassy workers
2: they would get them out of Afghanistan. We are left behind here with families, with uh, all uh, the uh, U.S. embassy staff are here right now.
1: You- Some Matt,
3: of the people you saw. This in goes
1: that- on quite long. It's a long <laughs> report. The right. United States walked out on its citizens, its green card holders, its legal permanent residents, and its SIV applicants, as well as the people who relied on it. What does that say about the United States?
0: Mm. Uh, it, it, well, I, I think it actually says many things. Uh, this has been a this complete and utter disaster. Um, but I, I would say what's, what strikes me the most uh, is, the, is the radical disjunction between Uh, our country's responsibilities, duties, agreements to to citizens and those we worked with, those who were allies with us, uh, rubbing up against what turns out to be in hindsight a a largely political decision to uh, be out of that country by a date certain. Uh, That is one aspect of good thinking, of statesmanship, if you will, uh, is to think strategically um, and uh, to take into consideration the circumstances and your outcome, but you can't ignore all these other aspects. A, a great country uh, does not do things that are clearly against its own interest when they had an easy option not to do it differently. Uh, it doesn't abandon its citizens. It used to be that this was the, the, the most important thing. We don't leave people behind, um, and we don't uh, signal allies and future friends who might need, we might need to help us in future conflicts, uh, this, is, this is how we treat them. So I, I think it was a disaster on, on every front. Um, we can argue about uh, the, the, the war prior to it, uh, what should have been left there, perhaps uh, holding an air base for, for intelligence purposes. Uh, but but the, the, the forced withdrawal and, and how it was done, and the, uh, the fact that it was avi- advised against but done for a political reason, I think, has led to this disaster, a complete disaster, by which we abandon our citizens in, uh, there. Uh, at the same time, in your previous clip, we're making uh, distinctions between citizens and non-citizens who are easily walking into the country uh, with no rule of law at home.
1: So, and have you noticed, being spawned? that that the full faith and credit of the United States democrats are yelling at republicans that the republicans are endangering the full faith and credit of the United States i'm about to move to that they do not seem to understand that the full faith of the credit of the United States was far more on the line in cobble with these people than it is in a budget debate in congress and i just want to know full faith and credit is not an economic term it's actually a term of reliance upon the sovereign power of the United States as embodied in the constitution and we failed in Afghanistan on the full faith and credit promises we made to these people.
0: No, I, I think that's that's absolutely, right. and that's a great point. I mean, the the uh, when we speak about the, the rule of law and full faith and credit, remember we're, when we're dealing with uh, other nations, these, these are these are nations that do not uh, have with us the same rule of law, uh, and so the rule of law that we show to other nations it, through our economics and trading. Uh, but also through how we treat them, and how we treat our friends and our enemies, for that matter. Uh, and and the the full cr- faith and credit of the country, outside of the country, is how we abide by agreements, how we carry out our responsibilities. And so that's much more strategically important than this narrow debate uh, right now, which is merely political maneuvering uh, to prevent a division within their own caucus. They, It's a very narrow-minded argument that I think that is being made about what that actually means today.
1: And a very important argument, which you just referenced, is how do we treat our friends? Here is Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib on the House floor yesterday talking about our strongest ally in the Middle East, Israel. Cut number four.
5: I rise in opposition to this supplemental. I will not support an effort to enable and support war crimes, human rights abuses, and violence. We cannot be talking only about Israelis' need for safety at a time when Palestinians are living under a violent apartheid system and are dying from what Human Rights Watch has said are war crimes. We should also be talking about Palestinian need for security from Israeli attacks. We must be consistent in our commitment to human life, period. Everyone deserves to be safe there. The bill claims to be, quote, a replenishment for weapons apartheid Israel used in a crisis it manufactured when it attacked worshippers at one of the most holiest Islamic locations, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, committing, again, numerous, numerous war crimes. And yet, a $1 billion in American tax dollars that my colleagues want to give represents to me an absurd and unjustifiable 140 times increase to US funding for the Iron Dome. I firmly believe our country must oppose selling weapons to anyone, anywhere, without human rights law compliance. The Israeli government is an apartheid regime. The Not my words, the, the words of Human Rights Watch, and Israel's own human Balling rights-
1: Chuck Watch. Fleischman of Tennessee, a Republican, rose to respond to this. Cut number five.
2: Mr. Speaker, the truth has finally come out on the floor of the House of the United States of America. I heard some of my Democratic colleagues stand with me, with Israel, with our ally, to fight terrorism with a defensive weapon system. And what did we just hear? We heard the Democratic Party speak out. We heard right now from my colleague across the aisle with a shocking statement. She opposes this because they have a vocal minority in the majority party that is anti-Israel, that is anti-Semitic, and as Americans, we can never stand for that. I grew up with Holocaust survivors. I grew up with children of Holocaust survivors. Israel has been attacked and attacked and attacked since its inception. As Americans, I beseech you. I reach out to the majority and I say, condemn what we just heard on the floor.
1: Matt Spalding, this is a vigorous debate about an important subject, but attacks on our friends, not standing by them, originated within the Democratic Party, and I don't think they're going to be forgotten by the American electorate for a long time.
0: No, I I, I don't think so. And um, this was um, in the uh, larger resolution. uh, It was then taken out and done as a standalone bill, and they lost uh, significantly in a vote. Uh, I mean, I, this is a great example of political reality hitting home. Uh, these are the kind of debates we should have in Congress. To be honest, uh, Congress should be debating these things, and we should be making our decisions. But the idea that we should not keep in mind who our friends and enemies are in the world, and who are citizens and non-citizens, and these very simple political distinctions that legislators and 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 statesmen must make uh, is is patently absurd. Uh, the problem is that, uh, and many of these things we're seeing right now, uh, are, are showing the extent to which the Democratic caucus is, is increasingly led by a very small minority in a very radical direction.
1: So all of these uh, subjects, Matt reviewed. Spalding, the rhetoric of the secretary of, HH, of, a, of DHS, uh, illegal immigrant, we don't use that anymore, the exchange between the White House press secretary and the PBS reporter, which is otherworldly, the exchange on the floor of the Senate, the S I B holders who've been abandoned. They all have in common one thing: they all call into question America's commitment to the rule of law. And I'm beginning to wonder: do, do you really think it exists anymore? Uh, well, I, I, I mean, I, I think it exists, uh,
0: especially on paper. I think it exists in most places. I think we're seeing a move in this direction. It's been going on for a while, and I think it's gotten more uh, apparent now in the current administration, precisely because I think that caucus, the, the party caucus of the administration, is so pulled in a more radical direction that it does not wish to abide by the rule of law. Put another way, all the things we've referenced here, uh, including others, uh, the, the, the mandates, the, the, the questions about redistricting that are going on right now, every one of them pushes against majority rule. That is, the, the, that is the, It undercuts the rule of law but in its place, it implies that majorities, which is say, lawmaking majorities, legislative majorities, voting majorities, those don't matter. All that matters is the outcome where we want to push policy. In the case of Congress, where we want to push policy despite an extremely narrow uh, majority in the House and no majority in the Senate, except with a tie-breaking vote. Uh, and, and just the, the extent to which they're pushing that hard, I think, has this deep effect on the rule of law and significantly undermines it and shows that they don't think there's a rule of law. And I think others, Republicans, governors, um, uh, citizens who are getting involved in things need to stand up for the rule of law, because really that is the bedrock of our system, which allows us to have disagreements and debates like this in Congress and then have decisions about how we move forward Uh, For the common good of the nation,
1: we're going to come back and talk about redistricting in just a moment. Matt just hit on a profound thing here. It's really about the rule of an elite pretending to be in the rule of the majority and speaking for the majority, but using that pretense to overturn the rule of laws embedded in the Constitution and the law. It's really about the rule of a bureaucratic elite and a very small minority of hard left fanatics within one party that is driving that party. We'll come back and talk about redistricting in just a moment.
2: This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.
1: Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The last radio hour of the week is the Hilltale Dialogue every week. All things Hilltale are found at Hilltale.edu. For 10 years, all of the conversations I had with Dean uh, Matt Spaulding, who's my guest today, or Dr. Larry the president of Hillsdale, or one of their colleagues, are all collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. And today we're closing with a discussion about redistricting because yesterday I had on former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, co-chair of the National Republican Redistricting Trust, to talk about redistricting. Matt Spaulding teaches the Constitution at the graduate school, Hillsdale's Graduate School of Statesmanship, Matt, what is the law of redistricting? What did the framers intend, and what do we need to know as we go into this every 10-year process?
0: Well, let, let, let me make a, a broad point first, uh, t- t- tying us back to
1: this rule of law question.
0: Uh, the, why do we have the rule of law? It was to prevent um, arbitrary power, uh, potential despotism, uh, you know, uh, making decisions at the hands of one person. And you divide that up in different ways. One is you divide the federal the governments themselves into branches of government, Congress, executive, judiciary. And there we're seeing more and more power as Congress either gives up its power or pushes it towards the administrative branch under the executive. But the other great division, of course, is between the federal government and the state governments. And that is crucially important, and we're increasingly seeing moves towards centralization going on for some time this is a key component of that conversation. Uh, the, the division between the federal government and the state governments is crucially important. The federal government has uh, certain powers in the Constitution, and they should have those powers extremely, um, uh, extremely important to have those powers, and they have them completely. And, there's, and there's, there's room for making more decisions, and it's mostly done, should be done through the legislature. But there are many key things that were left to the states, uh, and they're inherently state issues. One of those is how to organize and how to deal with elections and how do you draw congressional districts. And I believe just in the last couple of years, the Supreme Court once again said that drawing lines for districts is a political question and it's inherently a question for state legislatures. And the debate we're seeing right now and why this is crucially important is getting control of that in some sort of centralized way either through uh, uh, political maneuvers with a party or, in the case of H.R. 1, where you have legislation to uh, pull all that into and under the control of the federal government, undermines that crucial activity, breaks down that aspect of the rule of law. And if if you take away the ability to draw districts at the local level with state legislatures, You've taken an inherently political question, which should be done at that level where those political decisions can safely be made. And now you've made them centralized, highly partisanized questions, uh, which serve not the good of those legislative majority state level. Uh, They serve a a narrow partisan uh, objective. And I think that's the context in which this this debate is occurring.
1: Now, the 14th Amendment empowered the United States Supreme Court to make two interventions, one, to insist that every legislative district have an equal number of people in it. That's Baker v. Carr and Reynolds v. Sim in combination. They both rule that the United States, any body that redistricts, must have the same number, one person, one vote, the same voting strength. That was an imposition on redistricting. The next is that race may not be used in any context, in any drawing of line, unless it is under the 14th Amendment Article 5 authority to address prior civil rights violations such as embodied in the Voting Rights Act. Beyond that, it's a political process. I do not like these redistricting commissions, Matt. I think they're unconstitutional. But as long as they're going to be there, they ought not to be false flags for nonpartisanship when they're, in fact, Democratic partisans. And the rule is, where the Democrats get to draw the districts, they draw them to favor themselves, New York, Illinois, California. And where the Republicans have the majority in Florida and Texas and Ohio, they do it for them. And thus has it always been, and thus it will always be, because politics cannot be taken out of the rule of law. Am I right or wrong?
0: No, you're absolutely right. And, and I agree with you about the commissions. The commissions are unconstitutional. Uh, but let's think about it in the terms we've been discussing here. Those commissions are really the, the another version of kind of an administrative bureaucratic body which yep. has been given this authority on the grounds that somehow they're going to be impartial. Um, but, of course, that's not the case. This is one of the problems with the bureaucratic state. You can't get rid of politics. Politics are inherent in what it means to be human. We are political beings. We make political decisions. The safe way to deal with that is not to put it in the hands of bureaucrats But to leave that in the hands of legislatures, because we can't get rid of commissions if we don't like what they've done, but we can elect new legislatures. Um, It's an inherently political question. You can't remove that. This is one of the deep flaws of kind of the progressive theory of, of administration, that somehow we can be scientific and have experts do these things. It's an inherently political question. It needs to remain a political question. There are some rules, you mentioned the, the, those constitutional rules, but in general it should be uh, compact districts and things like that. But we must leave it in politics because the people, through their elections to the rule of law, can still control politics. And, and
1: we, will, we will use the Hillsdale Dialogue every week to talk about the will of the people as expressed through their elected representatives being the genius of the framers and the genius of our rule of law. Matt Spaulding, Dean of the Graduate School of Hillsdale. In Washington, D.C., thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Adam. Thank you all for listening. I'll be back inside the Beltway on Monday when we are next live, back with you on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.
2: When you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.